0: I want you to think back with me to your school days. Or actually, maybe you don't need to do that. Maybe you are in your school days. Think back to those days of final exams. I Hope we don't have any PTSD. Those days of preparing for those final exams where everything is going to be revealed and where everything comes down to that that one test to prove whether or not you know this subject. I want you to to focus on this scene of all of the different kinds of students during those weeks of final exams. You can think of the different categories of students, right? There's the ones that uh, the rest of us resent who worked hard all semester, and they're completely relaxed. They have nothing to fear. They're ready. Then there are those of us who slacked all semester, who are there in those final days cramming, trying to fit an entire semester's worth of education into a week or a few days. Then there are those that are overconfident. They haven't studied, but they aren't concerned because they're confident that they're good test takers and that actually studying is going to mess them up, so they're going to get a good night's sleep. And there are those that are fearful and cramming or attempting to cram, but are actually more prepared than they think they are. And they end up doing well. I remember my final year of college. I went to a four-year Bible college, having a final oral exam. It was a final theological exam, and I would have to meet with one of the theological faculty and sit with this professor for an hour. And he was going to ask me any question he wanted about theology, and I had to be able to answer and I remember being scared. And I remember uh, other upperclassmen in the past having told me horror stories of these oral exams going bad. And so I was so afraid, what if this professor asks me a question I'm, I'm not sure of or not aware of? And so I attempted to cram. I remember scanning the systematic theology books. I remember going back through old notes. I remember working really hard for that last week or two before the exam. Feeling unprepared, feeling in great danger. And then entering into that room that evening with that professor and to my great relief, the exam went well. It not only went well, the professor told me that it went great. I got an A. The professor I was assigned to was one that I knew. And he was encouraging and helpful. And he was able to draw out the things that were in there. At times, I was coming out with answers that I didn't even know were in there. And he told me at the end of the exam that he wasn't at all worried for me when I came in, but I was worried for myself. I was terrified. I wonder, as we think of this illustration that all of us can relate to of these final exams. I wonder how you feel in your relationship to God. I wonder how you feel that you stand with God today. I wonder how you would feel if you would, were to be ushered into God's presence and there He is standing on His judgment seat and He is now going to give you an exam. He's now going to hold you to account You know, all of us are going to have that situation one day. It may be today. But I wonder how you feel you might stand in that judgment. In some ways, that scenes of the different kinds of students preparing for the final exams may be helpful for us. Describing what different kinds of people might be like as they consider and anticipate this reality of standing before God. There may be some who are relaxed. There may be some who are cramming and fearful as they anticipate something like that. There are some who are overconfident. And others who are fearful but are actually prepared, even though they might not feel like it. You know, in our passage this morning, Jesus is speaking to different kinds of people in the crowd as he gives the second half of his sermon on the plain here in Luke chapter 6. And in this passage, he has different kinds of people in mind that he wants to be prepared for that final judgment day. And what he's seeking to do in our passage is to unsettle those that are overconfident and also encourage those that are fruitful and growing disciples of him. So... Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the second half of Jesus' long sermon, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. The title of the sermon is Kingdom Citizens Part 2. We saw Part 1 of Kingdom Citizens in verses 20 to 36, the last time we were in Luke, a couple of weeks ago. And we saw... What it means to be truly blessed by God. Jesus is establishing for us new and incredible categories of what it means to be blessed by him. And we saw the amazing reality that in Christ, sinners like you and like me can be truly blessed. And not only receiving blessings from God, but actually be pleasing to him, delightful to him, that he would take pleasure in us. We saw that this could only happen through Christ, through His death and His sacrifice in our place. But now Jesus turns, and the the second half of this sermon is focused on those that are overconfident in their relationship with God. And the the, the angle that Jesus is taking in our section, beginning in verse 37, is one of unsettling the overconfident. So if you have... uh, If you have a pen and are taking notes, our main point this morning is this. Jesus gives warning to the hard-hearted and assurance to the growing. Jesus gives warning to the hard-hearted and assurance to the growing. He's warning those that have a hard heart and who are self-righteous, and then he's giving assurance to those that are his true disciples who are growing in him. And I pray this morning that anyone here who is hard-hearted would be shaken to the core before it is too late and would heed this warning. That those of us that know Christ, that we would be encouraged and assured by Christ that as we see his work in us and our growing fruitfulness... That we would have confidence in him and not be afraid. Let's begin. We'll have three points this morning. Point number one, uh, the merciful and the self-righteous. Verses 37 to 38. The merciful and the self-righteous. Let's begin reading. I want to link verse 36 because these are connected. Look at how he finishes The previous section in verse 36. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And now our section, verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is God's Word. Throughout our section this morning, uh, Jesus in his sermon is dividing two kinds of people. He begins here by dividing those that are merciful and those that are self-righteous. And you see that he divides them by using different categories. There are the judgmental and the condemning on the one side, and there are the merciful, as we saw in 36. The forgiving and the generous on the other side. You see that there are ultimately two kinds of people in this world. And here he describes them in these categories. This verse, Luke uh, six thirty-seven, also recorded in Matthew 7, verse 1, uh, researchers say is the most famous verse in the Bible now. It used to be John 3.16, now it's Matthew 7.1 and Luke 6.37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. It's a verse that our generation, our culture can cling on to. Don't judge me. You have no right to judge me. The irony of the situation that we find ourselves in today is that people will latch on to a verse like this. Judge not, and you will not be judged and yet, in irony, be very judgmental people. We can, on the one hand, say, you have no right to judge me, and yet take part in all kinds of judgmentalism in the way that we look at others. We want to stiff-arm anybody that can say that they really know what we're going through, or can make any statements about our lives, on the one hand, and yet we can jump onto the court of public opinion and smear people that we don't know jump on the bandwagon of being judge and jury of people that we've never met and perhaps don't even know the whole story to. Social media is full of this. People who on the one hand don't want anyone to judge us and yet at the same time are full of judging others. It's a very interesting situation. What is Jesus saying by this? What does he mean by this? Do not judge and you will not be judged. Well, let's pause for a moment and Answer the question, what is he not meaning by this? Well, he doesn't mean that Christians are unable to make any kind of judgments. In fact, Jesus is going to go on and talk about people who are hypocrites. He's going to call them that. Whoa, that sounds judgmental, Jesus. No, he's making a judgment, a statement that there are people called hypocrites. He's going to also talk about those that are blind in verse 39. Whoa, that sounds harsh. But he's making judgments. You know, Christians are called to make judgments. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, a a passage on church discipline, the Apostle Paul actually tells the church that you are to judge those that are inside the church. Now, not with the kind of judgmentalism that Jesus is warning against here, where we put ourselves in in the actual place of God, where we climb into his judgment seat ourselves and attempt to be God in relation to someone else. But it is the calling of the church to call sin, sin. And in dealing with one another, when we see unrepentant sin in the life of a person, to call them out for it in love. That isn't judgmentalism to call sin, sin. It's being faithful. And it's actually taking God's side against sin. So there is a way in which we are to lovingly and humbly be able to make that judgment call of Naming sin, sin, and know that that isn't proud in and of itself. The kind of judgmentalism that Jesus is calling people out for here is one in which we decide that we can be the judge in someone else's life, that we can be God for them. We decide that we can be the one to declare who this person is and what it is that they deserve. The irony is for those who are judgmental, We are wanting to apply standards to others that we can't keep ourselves. And what Jesus says is if you take on this role of a judgmental person, God is going to use your own standard against you on the judgment day. You see what He says there in verse 38. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We heard in Romans a few months ago, if you turn to Romans chapter 2, God actually says on the last day, on the judgment day, one of the ways people are going to be judged when they stand before God is not simply what they have done and what they have said, though they will be judged for that. But regardless of how much they understand about God, we are going to be judged based on our judgment of others. Look at Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh men, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? This is what Jesus is talking about, of putting ourselves in the position of God and judging others. Condemning people in our own court. There's all kinds of ways that we can do this. And I think if we're honest, we know that we all do this, even on a daily basis. There may be large ways that we do this. Dismissing people completely. People made in the image of God. Writing them off completely. Thinking of ourselves as better than this person and looking down on them from a higher position. And then feeling better about ourselves because of the way that we have diminished this other person. Maybe having eyes to look around and see people that we think are worse than us. And then living on a high of thinking great about ourselves because of how good we seem in comparison with this other person. Apostle Paul talks about false teachers in his Corinthian letters. He says that they measure themselves by themselves themselves. And compare themselves with themselves. And in doing this, they're not wise. They make the standard for other people themselves. And then they use that measurement to make themselves feel better about their own lives. You know, all of us do this. I think what's scary about a passage like this is, if this is the case, God, all of us are condemned. Because all of us are judgmental. You know, Jesus has a standard that is incredibly high. A standard of perfection. And as he lays this out, that these judgmental people deserve his punishment and condemnation, all of us should be, if we assess things rightly, should realize that we deserve his wrath. And we do. Because all of us have been judgmental. All of us have been condemning of others. Whether it's with our words, with our keyboard, or simply with our thoughts and in our hearts. You know, God knows all of those things. And He will judge, them, judge us for them. And if we had to stand on our own, all of us would be condemned in His court. The, the wonderful news of the Gospel is that our God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to save judgmental and condemning people like you and like me. He actually came, Christ, to the world. God become man in the person of Jesus Christ through the virgin birth of Mary. And do you know what he said about his own life and ministry in this world? He said that he did not come to condemn the world, though he would have been right to do it, but he came so that the world through him might be saved. You know, Jesus, who is actually the judge, who is actually the rightful one to judge all of humanity because he created us. And he is as our God the one who will finally judge us. That when he came to earth, it wasn't to destroy or to condemn, but actually to offer salvation to people like you and me who are judgmental and condemning. The only hope for people like us is not in our ability to climb a ladder. It's not in our ability to try to earn our salvation. It's not in our ability to stop being judgmental because even if we stop being judgmental today and are never judgmental ever again the rest of our lives which is impossible we would still have to deal with all of the ways that we've sinned in the past but you know Christ has done that Christ came to earth he lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live on our own he then went to the cross willingly and was judged as if he was a sinner He was condemned as if he had done something wrong, though he was innocent. And yet he was condemned and judged, not because he deserved it, but because we do. Because we did. And in his death on the cross, he paid the penalty that our sins deserved. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave three days later, showing his victory over sin and over death. And he now reigns in heaven and judges all of humanity. And yet he offers salvation for judgmental people like you and me so that we might be forgiven by him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you don't know what it means to be forgiven by Christ, you know, today is the day of salvation. If you will turn to him, let me call you, turn to him, turn to Christ If you come to Him in faith and repentance, turning from your sin and trusting in Him, He will be for you no longer judge, but Savior. No longer the one to condemn you, but your friend forever. Encourage you, run to Him even now while you're in your seats and know that you can be forgiven. He also speaks not only of the judgmental and the condemning, but of the merciful and the forgiving and the generous. He talks about a different category of people, the kinds of people who understand the mercy of God because they've been forgiven by God. Those that have received mercy by God, though we know we deserve actually His wrath, but have received His mercy, who learned to be merciful. Those that have been forgiven who learned to forgive. Those that have received His generous grace and love and are now learning to be generous. And he says, for those of us who are learning these things and being fruitful in these things, we are going to receive back the same from God in the end. You see how he lists those things in verse 37 and 38. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. This is a reference to what would happen in the marketplace. If someone was purchasing grain, they would receive it in some kind of basket, whether it was a bushel basket or some other size. And the person selling it to them wouldn't just throw it in and give it to them, but no, they would shake it up to make sure they can um, get a full bushel. It'd be shaken and then filled to the very brim. And not only that, but filled to overflowing. And he's saying if we are generous like God has been generous to us, He is only going to continue to be more generous with us. I think at times even Christians can think of God as being a tight-fisted God. Did you know that He isn't? That He's generous with His children. And that He teaches us to be loving and generous to others. And then He loves to then, as we are generous, continue to be generous with us. He's generous in His love and His kindness and His grace. He's generous in the, the relationships that He gives us in the church. He's generous even in providing for our needs and giving us more than we need so that we can be generous to others. Let me encourage you to to delight in your generous God and your kind God. Let me encourage you to avoid those images of God that would cause you to think of him as some kind of Ebenezer Scrooge, tight-fisted and holding on to good things and keeping them from you. No, your God is a generous one. Let me encourage you as well, Christian. Christian. as as one who has not been judged by God, who has not been condemned by God, and who has received forgiveness and generosity from God. Let me ask you, are you growing in this? Are you growing in being more forgiving and generous to others? You know, that's the only proper thing for us as Christians. Those of us who have been forgiven by God to forgive others. You know, at times this is very hard, especially when people hurt us in deep ways. But do you know as you begin to forgive others, as you have been forgiven, you will find joy in God and joy in the Christian life that you can't imagine. Let me encourage you to forgive and to be generous. To find delight in not simply what you can hold on to and what you can hoard, but what you can give away knowing that it is every dollar that you give away and being kind to others and even giving to Christ and to His kingdom that you know you'll never ultimately lose. It will be establishing treasures for you in heaven. I pray that we would be growing in these things as we come to know Christ in deeper ways, growing to be merciful and working against such judgmentalism and self righteousness. That's point number one the merciful and the self righteous. Point number two the fruitful and the hypocrites. The fruitful and the hypocrites. Point number two, and this will be verses 39 all the way down to 45. Let me read this section. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus goes from unsettling those that are judgmental and self-righteous to now unsettling those that are hypocritical. Jesus is unsettling hypocrites. But when I, uh, when my wife and I were first married, uh, we would sit together and read books out loud to each other. Uh, With three kids, we don't seem to be doing this much anymore, but that was fun. That first year, we started reading a classic by Charles Dickens called Bleak House, written by Charles Dickens in the 1850s. She, he, uh paints a picture in the early chapters of a character named Mrs. Jellybee. Mrs. Jellybee is, once you read of her, uh, is impossible to forget. In this scene where she's introduced to the reader, Dickens paints this vivid picture of her home and her children and then Mrs. Jellybee herself. She's a philanthropist who's consumed with showing love to others in great and profound ways. And her focus, she lives in London is setting up a mission in a particular state in Africa to bring money and education to starving people in Niger. When you meet her in the story, all she talks about is her work in Africa, of the work she's doing and all the things that she's accomplishing. And she says, it involves all the devotion of all my energies. And with masterful satire, Dickens subtly portrays her household as a sad mess. Her children are severely neglected and dirty, starving for actual food and even more for her attention. Her home is a mess, falling apart, even though she's not poor. And in order to care for a people a thousand miles away, she ignores the people who were right there in front of her, the husband she married, the kids she gave birth to, the once nice home that she lives in. The scene is at once both funny, and devastatingly sad. It's clear that Dickens is critiquing a type of person who goes around doing good, or attempting to do good, or to show love to others, but yet ignores the most obvious good that they should be doing. This woman declares she's all about loving those that are in need, and yet she ignores the people in need in her own home, right in front of her. This picture for us is, I think, a helpful sketch of what hypocrisy can look like. Where we, on, on the one hand, say what it is that we're about, loving others. And yet the sad reality that we can be a hypocrite who then does the very opposite with our actual lives. Who can say one thing or maybe tell others one thing and yet do the exact opposite. In some ways it's similar to those that are judgmental. But it's different and unique. The hypocrite is the one who has commands for others but won't lift a finger to do it themselves. Here, Jesus calls out those that are such hypocrites. He uses a wonderful illustration of his own. That of a person who has a speck in his eye. Something very painful. If you've ever had dirt or a speck or something in your eye, you know it's an incredibly painful thing and something that must be dealt with. Jesus then, in an almost comical way, imagines someone attempting to get that speck out who's walking around with a log in their eye. Think of the contrast here. And what is he describing? Someone who has some great sin in their own life that they're not dealing with, who has their eyes focused on everybody else's much smaller sins and thinks that it's this person's job to point out everybody else's sins and faults, and yet won't deal with their own incredibly obvious faults. They don't have eyes to see them. Jesus is here unsettling the hypocrites. I wonder if you're here and you're not a Christian. I've heard many non-Christians say, oh, I have no interest in Christianity or in church because all Christians are hypocrites seems to be a popular idea to a spouse. Oh, the churches are just full of hypocrites. Well, if you think that, or if you've ever thought that, do you know that our leader, Jesus, the leader of Christianity, says that hypocrisy is wrong. And even if Christians have been hypocritical, the fact that some Christians are hypocritical doesn't prove that Christianity isn't true. In fact, I think the reality is To be hypocritical is to be human. All humans struggle with hypocrisy, and it can start young. All of us can struggle with attempting to look as if we're better than we really are. All of us can be learning to put on a mask, to put on a certain face, maybe even on Sunday to put on a certain outfit and to show up pretending like we're better than we are acting better than we are in order to feel better about ourselves and our situation. All of us can struggle with this sin of hypocrisy. But do you see what Jesus is saying? The fact that all of us struggle with this sin doesn't make it acceptable. It's something that needs to be dealt with. And he actually is also saying... Or identifying sin in others isn't bad in and of itself. Do you see that? The person with the speck in his or her eye needs to have that speck dealt with. But imagine going to an optometrist or ophthalmologist and walking in to get that speck dealt with in your eye, and the person walks in with a tree sticking out of his or hers. That's not the person to help you. What Jesus is saying here is similar to what captains tell us when we're on airplanes. If that oxygen mask comes down, you need to put it on yourself first. If you want to be a help to others and to to make sure that everyone has the oxygen in that case of emergency, you need to make sure that you are safe first. That is, we need to have an eye as Christians, not just on picking out everybody else's sins and faults and weaknesses first, but actually attending to our own hearts and lives first. You know, we as Christians should be those who should uh, be working against hypocrisy because to believe the gospel at all is to believe that we're all sinners. And we as Christians shouldn't be, in a sense, ashamed or afraid of our sin being exposed because God actually tells us our sin is way worse than we even thought or ever knew. That's what the gospel tells us. That all of us have sinned in profound and heinous ways in our rebellion against a good and loving God. And this actually means that we as Christians should be growing and being able to be honest about our sin and not attempting to hide it. That we should be able to see the church not as a museum for saints, like a wax museum, but a hospital of recovering, self righteous, and judgmental, and hypocritical people. You see, all of us, if we're here this morning, should be willing to admit that we're sinners. Should be able to take that mask off in which we're pretending to be better than we really are. And should be able to admit to one another all of the ways in which we're sinning. And know that in the church that there can be a sweet and loving circle of trust where all of us are not here to expose one another or to gossip about one another or to show ourselves to be better than each other but are actually there to help each other grow in holiness. But we must do this by addressing our own sin first. You know, this is one of the the wonderful reasons for church membership. One of the important reasons for church membership is actually to help us grow in being honest about our sin and actually uprooting that sin that all of us have in our hearts. One of the wonderful things that we can be doing as Christians and members of the body of Christ is actually bearing each other's burdens, putting ourselves in a position where we ask other people to lovingly ask us awkward questions on a regular basis. One of the reasons I've joined a church, joined this church, is because I know there's going to be days, and maybe even seasons of my life, where I don't want anybody asking me tough questions, but I know that on that day, I'm going to need it. And so I join a church in order to ask other people to hold me accountable on the day when I'm tempted to, to sneak off or to hide, to withdraw from fellowship and to give in to my sin. And one of the ways you can grow in not being a hypocrite is by being in the kind of discipleship relationships where you invite others to ask you hard questions, to ask you those awkward questions about how you're doing with maybe that particular besetting sin or two, and where you lovingly do the same to others. Let me encourage you, if you don't have that and would like that, I would love to talk with you after and perhaps help link you into a relationship where you can enjoy such fellowship, a fellowship of honesty, but also of working hard together and fighting and uprooting sin. If you're uh, here and you're not a Christian, perhaps you are convicted of your own hypocrisy. Let me encourage you to not be ashamed of it. All of us are hypocrites. All of us, to one degree or another, are attempting to hide what's really below the surface. Let me encourage you to work against this by coming into the light of God's presence, into the light of the truth and of the gospel. And though sin is going to be hard and hurtful to to be aware of and to see in all of its ugliness, know that there's hope for salvation. Hope for that sin to be dealt with finally on Christ's cross. And then hope to be in the kind of community where you can grow together with other sinners who aren't giving in to sin, but together fighting to grow in holiness. He talks here about those that are blind attempting to lead the blind. talks as well about a disciple not being above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. It looks like Jesus is referencing here spiritual leaders, when he's actually saying that spiritual leaders need to not be blind leaders, leading people astray, but those that are trustworthy and have integrity. In other words, those that are to be leaders in the church are to be those that are looking in their lives like Jesus. The people who are leaders in the church aren't just to be the ones who are good at talking or good at presenting a wonderful and powerful sermon, but actually a leader who is practicing what he's preaching and has some experience with the things he's talking about by actually growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus is also seeking to encourage those uh, who are fruitful and growing in fruitfulness in verses 43. To forty-five, Those of us who have been changed from the inside out are going to be growing in fruitfulness like a good tree, slowly bearing faithful fruit. He uses this illustration in 43 to 45 of a bad tree not being able to produce good fruit and a good tree not being able to produce bad fruit. The image here is this image of fruitfulness says we can know who a person is by the life that they live, by the things they say and the things that they do. I think at times, this illustration can be scary for us. And I think as Christians, sometimes this can frighten us. Do I have enough fruit? Am I demonstrating enough fruitfulness? Am I not even a Christian at all? You know, another reason for church membership is having people around you who are in your life and walk with you for a period of time, who can help you see some of the fruit that you might not even be aware of. Just as at times in our hypocrisy, we may be pretending that we're better than we are. As Christians, at times we may be believing that we're worse than we are. We may be so aware of our besetting sins or particular sins that we're not getting that victory over that we can be discouraged and think that we're not growing at all. It's wonderful to have members in your church who know you and who have seen you who can say, you know what, I know that you're discouraged in this one area, but I knew you three years ago. I knew the things that you were struggling with two years ago, and look at how far you've come in that. Who can be reminding you of the ways that you're growing in your walk with Christ? Let me encourage you to invest deeply in a church and in relationships so that people can actually be encouraging to you as they see you grow on a daily and weekly basis. Who can remind you of the ways that you're growing, who can point out the ways that you're being forgiving and even generous, like we heard about earlier. In the times that we forget, though, let me encourage you, if you are frightened by a passage like this, to be perhaps encouraged as you see not perfection in your life, but growing fruitfulness. That's point number two, the fruitful and hypocrites. Point number three, the wise and the foolish. Jesus ends with another illustration, the illustration of two builders. A very well-known illustration uh, for Christians. Let's read verses 46 to the end of chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock and when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. The ruin of that house was great. I don't know if you sung this song as a, a child. The wise man built his house upon the rock. But this, uh, this parable is well known for Christians. The parable of building either on the strong foundation of the bedrock or building without a foundation. It's a very fascinating and important parable for us to consider. Just as Christ has been unsettling in these previous sections, the judgmental and self-righteous, just as He's been unsettling hypocrites, here He is unsettling the self-deceived. He's unsettling those who believe that they're Christians and are right with God, but yet have no foundation. He actually says, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? In Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, it's the famous passage where he talks about those who are going to on the last day say, Lord, haven't I done all of these things in your name? And he's going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you though you did so many wonderful and powerful things in the kingdom, you were never a true Christian and Christ never knew you. Here he's unsettling the self-deceived who've built a house, who appear to be a Christian, who appear to be living out some kind of religious life, and yet the whole thing's a sham. Here he's, he's unsettling the self-deceived. You know, not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is one. Not everyone who declares to be a Christian and professes faith in Christ is a true Christian. Who are the ones who are? Well, it's the ones that actually obey Christ. Now, it's clear that no amount of obedience can ultimately make us right with God. It's only what Christ has done for us that will save us. But those that have come to know Christ are those that do obey Him and who live lives of obedience to Him and delight to do His will who are characterized by this kind of fruitfulness, or characterized by forgiveness and mercy and generosity. You see, it isn't just those that understand and hear what Jesus said, and there are many of those. There are many who sit through church their whole lives and know many things about God and about Christ, who hear, but are hearers only, and have never responded to the truth of the gospel with faith and established their lives on the foundation that is Christ. This is a warning this morning for the self-deceived. And I would be wrong if I did not seek to in some way unsettle some of you even here today. Jesus' words are heavy. Jesus' words in some ways are scary and they should be because the flood of God's judgment is coming for any and all who have not run to Christ. The flood of God's judgment will one day rock you and only the unshakable will remain. And who are those that are unshakable? Those that have been firmly rooted on Christ, who have built their lives on the foundation that is Christ because only Christ will be unshaken. So if you are here and you have been perhaps attending church, maybe even your whole life, and yet your life has looked no different from the time you started to go to church until today, you should be concerned. You should be afraid and fearful. You should be, by these words, unsettled. Do not enter that judgment day without being prepared to see Christ. Without having turned from your sins and trusted in Christ and been changed by Him from the inside out through His forgiving grace. Let me encourage you, if your life has not been changed by Christ, I don't care how much you know about the Bible. I don't care how many memory verses you can give me. The real question is, what have you done with Christ? Have you responded to His gospel call? Have you found in Him a Savior? And if not, let me encourage you to allow God to unsettle you and today to build your life and your faith the only foundation that matters, the foundation of Christ. There are others, in conclusion, who may be like some of those characters that we talked about in our introduction, who are fearful of their exams, but actually, perhaps, more ready than they think they are. Uh, The Baptist pastor, Charles Spurgeon, a pastor in London in the late 1800s, in his autobiography, gives a touching account of a, an older woman who was never assured of her faith, who never received the assurance that God offers to His people. Let me read a bit of Spurgeon's autobiography as we hear a pastor caring for uh, a a woman who's dealing with a lack of assurance of her faith. Among my early hearers at Water Beach, to one of his early churches that he pastored, was one good old woman whom I called Mrs. Much Afraid. I feel quite sure that she's been many years in heaven, but she was always fearing that she should never enter the gates of glory. She was very regular in her attendance at the House of God and was a wonderfully good listener. She used to drink in the gospel But nevertheless, she was always doubting and fearing and trembling about her own spiritual condition. She had been a believer in Christ, I should think, for 50 years, but she had always remained in that timid, fearful, anxious state. She was a kind old soul, ever ready to help her neighbors or to speak a word to the unconverted. She seemed to me to have enough grace for two people, yet in her own opinion, she had not half enough grace for one. One day, when I was talking with her, she told me that she had not any hope at all. She had no faith. She believed she was a hypocrite. I said, Well, then don't come to the chapel anymore. We don't want hypocrites here. Why do you come? She answered, Well, I come because I can't stay away. I love the people of God, I love the house of God, I love to worship God. Well, I said, You're an odd sort of hypocrite. You're a strange kind of unconverted woman. Ah, she, said, she sighed, you may say what you please, but I have not any hope of being saved. So I said to her, well, next Sunday, I will let you go into the pulpit that you may tell the people that Jesus Christ is a liar and that you can't trust him. Oh, she cried, I would be torn in pieces before I would say such a thing as that. Why, he cannot lie. Every word he says is true. Then I asked, well, then why do you not believe it? She replied, I do believe it, but somehow I do not believe it for myself. I'm afraid whether it is for me. Have you not any hope at all, I asked? No, she answered. So I pulled out my wallet and I said to her, now I have five pounds here. It's all the money I have. But I will give you that five pounds for your hope if you will sell it. She looked at me wondering what I meant. Why, she exclaimed, I would not sell it for a thousand worlds. She had just told me she had not any hope of salvation, yet she wouldn't sell it for a thousand worlds. I fully expect to see that good old soul when I get to heaven, and I'm certain she will say to me, "Oh dear sir, how foolish I was when I lived down there at Water Beach. I went groaning all the way to glory, when I might just as well have gone there singing. I was always troubled and afraid, but my dear Lord kept me by his grace and brought me safely here. She died very sweetly. It was with her, as John Bunyan said it was, with Miss much afraid, Mr. Despondency's Daughter. He's referring to Pilgrim's Progress. When the time had come for them to depart, they went to the brink of the river, and the last words of Mr. Despondency were, Farewell night, welcome day. And his daughter went through the river singing. Our Lord often makes it calm and peaceful or even joyous and triumphant for his departing timid ones. He put some of his greatest saints to bed in the dark, and they wake up in the eternal light. But he frequently keeps the candle burning for Mr. Little Faith, Mr. Feeble Mind, Mr. Ready to Halt, Mr. Despondency, and Miss Much Afraid. They go to sleep in the light, and they also wake up in the land where the Lamb is all the glory forever and ever. I love this account of the kind of person who is shaken by passages like this, who hears passages about judgmentalism and knows the judgmentalism of their own heart, who hears Warnings about hypocrisy and wonders. Am I that hypocrite who hears warnings about the fool who's built their house without a foundation and is then shaken and afraid? Do you know that Christ is not desirous of his children lacking assurance, but actually desires for them to be assured of their faith as they grow in him? Let me encourage you if you are timid and fearful that that isn't God's purpose for you. If you need to be shaken, then be shaken. But if you are growing in your faith, be encouraged. And let me encourage you, even if you are in this situation, to tell others about it and bring others into your struggle. It may be that they, like faithful Pastor Spurgeon, would encourage you with truth and encourage you as they see you growing in holiness. I pray that as we are working as God's people, as Christ's, disciples, as kingdom citizens, as we're growing and putting away judgmentalism and self-righteousness, growing and putting away hypocrisy and foolishness, that we would then be growing and imitating our merciful and kind God and our faithful Savior, as we learn from him and grow in him, not perfect yet, but one day, and yet in the meantime growing, but growing together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you convict in order to convert. We thank you that you encourage your people in order to give them peace and hope. We pray that you would be doing your work even through this passage and this sermon to unsettle those who need to be, to encourage those that need to be, and that in this way your people would Be built up, prepared for that day when we will stand before Christ and know that because we are fixed on Him, that we will not be shaken but enter into joy with you forever. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.